Okay, back here with uh, my uh, my good buddy, Rasha McChesney. Hello, Landfield. I've been trying to get this podcast for, I think, years. I, good things come to those who wait. We were just talking about, um, you were having me adjust your volume, because you, with KTO. I'm or in pub- radio, yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about my mouth noise, and yeah. so I don't want to hear it while we're, I'm talking to you. We're trying to hijack my mixer. <laughs> I was. That's actually, that's 100% true. So I was saying that there was this, I watched part of this documentary, I think it's called The quietest room in the world and mm-hmm. they have this hyper like um soundproofed room they made and there's like no i mean there's like no sound so you can hear your heartbeat so people go in there and they can't go in there for more than a few minutes because they can hear their blood fl- i mean they, it's like they drive they drive themselves nuts i don't see why that would be a problem unless you just sort of hate yourself on some level i would love to know what my blood flow sounds like have you ever seen the inside of a human body um do you no. know that it's like like I went on assignment like once. Yeah. I, uh, not live, dead, but still juicy. But like you've seen, like they've cut the book. Yeah. It was an accident and it was an amazing accident. I was doing an assignment oh for the Quad City Times, which is in the first newspaper that I worked at outside of college. And um, there was this really great smoking cessation program they wanted me to go take pictures of. And the program was three hearts and one of them belonged to a smoker and one of them belonged to a non-smoker. And then I don't remember what the person in the middle did. Maybe they smoke for just like a few years in college or something. But I got this idea that I wanted to be behind the hearts when people came into the room to look at them, to think about what they were doing when they smoked. And I like, did you know, wait, did you know you were going to see this when you went there? No. And so I loop around this, this big table in this lab to get this photo and I'm knelting, I'm kneeling down and I, this group of people comes in and I'm taking these photos and I'm realizing at the same time, like, God, it really smells bad back here, but I've got to get these photos and they walk out and I, drop my camera and I look down and there's a wide open full cadaver (laughs) laying on the table. I mean, maybe an inch and a half from my face. Uh, and it's amazing. We look like a, a butcher counter inside. It all looks like meat. It looks like something you can eat. And, um, it also is all sort of floating in fluid. Did you know that? I mean, I've seen like I think videos of people like open heart surgery where they crack the, ch- I mean, you can see yeah. everything kind of, I mean, I've seen that, I guess, but I've never seen it. So lot, like when you, know, you inhale like you, and exhale, you're basically like making a tide in your body. Wow. So I guess I, I would love to hear what that sounds like in real time. That's all I'm saying. You should have been a doctor. Journalism is pretty great. I think so in terms of. <laughs> let's first, yeah, talk about who, because for the folks not listening, who don't know who you are. You work at. KTO, is it a public media or yeah, another kind it's of public media, it's public mi- radio, or, public television. They're yeah. like meshed. Um, and you've been there for a while, but you had, you've worked in for yeah different organizations for, so talk a little bit about kind of who you work for and how you got into so, you're in Texas. I'm from Texas. I've been in Alaska for 10 years. Um, and I started at a newspaper on the Kenai Peninsula, um, the Peninsula Clarion. And I was there for almost three years. And then I moved in 2015 to Juneau and I worked for the AP for a stint, like the little legislative. Oh, they're, they're right down there. the hall yeah. there. Same, same building. Here. Do you bug, do you go down there and bug Becky? I do bug Becky. Yeah. I, the door's locked. I don't, she probably sure. locks it now. I'm not sure if that's always been that way or not. I don't think I do so. knock and then I <laughs> say uh, hi. And then KTOO, uh, which is this radio station, television station here in town, um, needed some like summer relief. And so I just jumped in and said I'd do it and thought it would be fun to learn radio. And I've been there for six years. But now recently you just announced you're leaving this job. Yeah, I am. I accepted a job. um, Well, if you remember the energy desk, Alaska's energy desk, it was kind of like a collaboration of newsrooms. Um, My my boy, Nat Hers. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I was OG energy energy desk. I think I'm the only one that was left. Um, We brought Nat on, I think maybe two years after it started. Which I'm still confused what, I mean... Because Nat would do a lot of stuff that was like political, but he would do, he would do some energy stuff. But yeah. I, so that was, I think it confused a lot of people and I'm a little concerned that we didn't do a good job explaining it, but essentially the energy desk was a collaboration of newsrooms um, that hired reporters that were supposed to be focused on energy and the environment. And we did that for the first couple of years. Um, and we did some really cool like podcasts and projects about energy and deep dives on finances and stuff. And then um, the idea when we got all that grant funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was that it was supposed to add capacity to newsrooms. So when you were done getting funded by that you know, pot of money, the newsroom would have found a way to make you stay on. 
And it definitely did Ooh. that. So, so Nat kind of transitioned from uh, climate change and environmental reporting to doing political reporting for Alaska Public Media and um, a lot of other sort of statewide See, for, stuff. For a while, for a while, I thought it was like Alaska, like like energy, not like like high like energy. We have energy here. Yeah, the name was not great because um, he was doing you know because he, he's such a good reporter and I you know I known him for a long time and he's um I, I love his stuff you know it's good and he he gets. Not, not a lot of people these days dig deep. Yeah. I mean, because you, you, so you work for, and I have my own thing, mm-hmm. and I don't have much pressure. I mean, I try to put up a story every day, but, you know, I can also just wait, and if I'm working on a bigger story, but if you're like a newspaper or a KTO or you know, ADN or Channel 2, you have to, like, churn out the content. Daily news. And I, I think that's good for some people, but for me, I try to go for, qual- you know, quality, and sometimes it takes... And that's the inherent, I guess, issue with, you know, these people who need to put out content a lot. They can't spend as much time on the investigative stuff. Well, I think in in uh, previous times, I don't want to see the, say the sort of the olden days because journalism has always been sort of careening on a bus and maybe not <laughs> super well. But there was a time when there were enough people in the newsroom that you had enough daily news content that wasn't all just sort of like breaking news and reading press releases and sort of just getting things out as fast as you could because you had enough people like newsrooms were paying enough people to be doing what you and I are doing which is developing these sort of longer stories when there was more advertising money yeah yeah pretty much so we've talked a lot you and I talk all the time and sometimes it's you telling me I said something (laughs) stupid. It's pretty regularly me telling you that you've done something. Pretty, pretty, pretty routinely. But we talk a lot about journalism and what that is. And, you know, I'm new. Like I started this five, about five years ago, not five, quite five years ago. And I just did it because I was in politics and I knew a lot of stuff that was going on that didn't get reported for, and part part of that I've realized now is, you know, there's a lot of like reporters and journalists here in Juneau, but I don't really see them too hardly ever out of the bars or. Out and that's where I go, and that's where I get my story. A lot of my stories, yeah. or people get have a drink and they, hey, did you hear about this? Or hey, I'm, did you look into this? I'm sort of of two minds about that. Uh, I have seen when I first got here in 2015, there were a fair number of reporters that would go out and sort of party with lobbyists and party with legislators, and that always gave me it gave me a little bit of heartburn. I think I came from um, sort of school of thought on journalism that you kind of stay socially separate um, from the people that you're covering, and my my views on that have definitely evolved. Um, but I still think for a lot of journalists, especially a lot of people, you know, right out of journalism school or they come from the lower 48 where it's possible to live in a community separately from the people that you're covering. What you're seeing is the kind of old school rules of journalism that we learned where you, you don't party, you should be able to get that information in other ways. And I think, you know, I think Andrew Kitchman's work is a really good example of this. When was the last time you saw that guy knocking back a shot with a legislator? Never. I think I've seen and Andrew when, maybe one. I think I've seen him maybe one time in like four years of being down here. I think I might have seen him out like once. I mean, he does go out. He just doesn't. He doesn't socialize with the people that he's covering. And see, it's 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 like it's tough for me because if I didn't do that, I mean, I, I go to I go to the Capitol and I watch things and I and I talk to people in the Capitol. But you know, when people are relaxed and when they trust you and they you have I mean, people have relationships with with legislators or, or you know, public officials or government workers anyways. Doesn't necessarily need to be something at the bar, but you talk to people you trust and they tell you things. I just find that sometimes by be socializing with those people, they you, you sometimes hear something or they say something that not always may be intentional. But, oh, hey, that's a good, let me look into that. I think, and this is not meant to to sort of dodge the question, but I do think that there's a news ecosystem. And you and I and Andrew and Nat, sometimes there's a bit of overlap, but we are all part of a much larger ecosystem. And there, I've seen you break stories. You just published one that I thought was so interesting about this bus driver in Juneau that isn't able to get a CDL renewed, and he's been here for what? 1980 was when he... Yeah, almost 40, well, 40 years. And, and, and those stories I think are really, really important. And Andrew's policy stories I think are really, really important. And I think they require a different relationship with your sources. So I kind of, I guess I can see how both of those methods can work. I mean, don't you feel like, I feel like a lot of the stuff, not all of it, but so much I read or see, and maybe I'm just like so ingrained in this thing, but I just see a lot of stuff where I'm like, mm, that's not going to change anything. That's, I mean, it's information and it's good, but it's not, it's just like right at the surface. 
does journalism have to change something to be important? I mean, I just feel like some of it's regurgitating what the government says. Yeah, hundred percent. We or, definitely have that problem. Or you know, not ask like something. An article comes out, but all and sometimes this is like newer people who move up here and they don't know all, all the background, but they like miss. I mean, they just regurgitate something and then they don't ask like kind of an obvious to me an obvious question about. You've been here for a while, and also I think you know one we're sort of juggling two problems here we're juggling a lot of problems but um Craig Medred are you have you met him are oh yeah I've done a Craig? podcast with him he's great I love Craig did you see the the um story that he posted about the um plane crash yes that, and, and yeah and he made some really interesting points about the number of reporters who picked up that story and didn't ask what to him were really obvious questions um and so every, for the people listening this guy crashed his plane and kind of left just wandered away. And, and there was a search, go, ongoing search, and uh, he turns out he just like went home. Yeah, and and at the time, you know, the story that a lot of uh, outlets, um, I think Craig brought up ADN specifically because he likes to pick on them because he used to work there. Um, they just picked up what the troopers said, which is always going to be a problem. It, it's not legit just because it's on letterhead, and I think a lot of reporters have to learn that um, I mean, the I, hard way. I, I pretty much, I mean, I'll read the press releases, but I mean, I'm, I more or less ignore them. I mean, once in a while there's a press release that actually has some valuable information or something something worth like kind of oh, talking about. Oh, I think about. the most telling press releases are the ones that you're like, why Why is this a press release? Something crazy is going on over there for you to have yeah. put this message out. Or the ones that come out at like 4.55 on a Friday. 5.04. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're like, mm, why are they doing that? Yep. So I think, I think, um, so I think that's a problem. There's a problem of sort of like, uh, yes, that happens. And sometimes you can chalk it up to the inexperience of the reporter and not knowing um, you know, where to go for that kind of information. Cause you learn how to question things like that ostensibly from people in your own newsroom that teach you to dig deeper. But we had this point in, you know, the early aughts, I guess, of the two thousands where we lost all that advertising, re advertising revenue and people like Craig, who was an investigative journalist for quite some time. And then an investigative columnist and left the newsrooms for whatever reason, they either took buyouts or, you know, it, it didn't work out to keep them there. And now, Who's teaching reporters to dig deeper? I mean, this well, really, other, this whole industry used to be based on kind of a, um, it was a training program. You'd get into a newsroom and you'd be working with a bunch of people who knew better and, and they would show you the way of how to do this, of who to question, of never to trust the first account that you get and 100% never to trust the official account. But who is left in these newsrooms to do that now? Well, and the other problem is, you know, you have like, so Grace Jang was a reporter. She went to Wath Walker and then, Austin Barrett was a report, report, you know, with Channel Two, good reporter. They both were went to, went to work you for make the Walker, money somewhere. you know. And then you have um, Megan Baldino before with, you know, she went to uh, was B was a BP. For, she was a BP. I think she was somewhere before that. I didn't know she was a reporter before that. She was the anchor at um, kind of the Channel Two anchor. Oh yeah, it yeah. seems like every time I look up a, a state. Uh, um, PR person, they were a journalist at some time in the past. There were some, yeah. So you get the ones that go to the government or the private sector, or like my friend Adam Pinsker, I don't know if you remember him, he was covering Juno for Channel 2 for a while, and then he, he got picked up to like a bigger, you know, went to think Florida. So mm -hmm. the, the TV ones go for the bigger markets or, or, you know, the private sector job or the government job, because part of it's the pay. I mean, it doesn't pay much. Part of it's the pay, part of it's the, the pressure, I think. Because um, there are a lot of us who stuck around and accepted this pay because we're passionate about what it means to be a journalist. And we know that journal, you know, that communities need journalists and we're willing to work for pennies on the dollar for that. But I think there's also in the last three years, there's been this massive exodus of journalists and it's just like the pressure and also the tide of public opinion right now is just um, really against it's, I mean, some of that's, I think, warranted. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think... It's always warranted. We've always had these problems in journalism. Anybody who thinks these are new problems needs to go back 100 years ago and read about the newspaper wars and the big mm -hmm. metropolitan areas that we have. We, we as, a, as an industry, have always had this problem of, you know, there's, there's no licensing procedure for journalists. A, a journalist can pretty much say whatever the heck they want, and depending on the power structure in their newsroom, it may or may not get caught. It may or may not get corrected. It may or may not be accurate, and that has all that has always been a problem. But well, I mean, and nothing like in my case. I, you know, I had to sue the governor over the stupid press conference thing did, because yep. uh, you know there was this argument about traditional media, non-traditional media, what that is, and you know it, it was ended up being successful, but it would you know it took a while, and it was you know luckily they paid the my lawyer's fees, but 
um, there was this big argument about what what is who's a journalist or what's who's the media, and I mean I think that's fair to you know differentiate if some guy wants to, some person wants to start a website and they've and they've done nothing. But this is not a binary thing. We're but, in an ecosystem. That there has to be some. You can be a journalist and I can be a journalist because our readers, people who consume journalism, aren't idiots. They're not coming to a blog or a newspaper and looking, comparing those things side by side and thinking that they hold equal weight. And I think this is something that journalists don't get for some, and I don't understand. I don't understand how we can think that our readers and our listeners and our viewers, the people who are actively seeking out news don't have discerning ability. Would you agree on some level the government has, and they do, I mean, based on precedent, they have a right to establish some kind of process for who they credential or who they recognize. And I think that's fair to, But you have to have a process. You have to have a fair process. I mean, this was litigated in D.C. for the same reasons. There has to be a process for who's allowed into the White House. And it has to be applied evenly. You can't, you know, purposely uh, target someone, create create criteria to get rid of some person. Yeah. Um, And we don't have that here. So we can't just say you're not allowed in because you're not a journalist. Maybe they can establish some criteria. Well, the interesting thing, and I think folks don't, I mean, nobody really realizes this, but the governor, um, I don't believe has ever, now or former governors have not they, they have not credentialed the media the legislature provides credentials to like the building for the quote-unquote press pass but it really doesn't do anything it during COVID it did last year when the capitol was closed but i mean anybody can just go in the building and go to a press conference and hang out i mean alaska is um I don't want to say behind in some ways. We're, we're lucky in some ways here that these things haven't had to be litigated in the same way they have in other places. I think we're probably getting to a point where they are going to have to be litigated. But one of the great things about living in this state is the access that you get mm-hmm. to your local and your state government. And one of the downsides of serving in local and state government here is that every journalist <laughs> and blogger and person who is reporting for whatever community they're reporting for has access to you. Well, you told me something. We talked about this a long time ago, but I, I loathe Suzanne Downing. I really do. I think she's a horrible, evil person. Um, but you feel a little bit. You you you, you said, and I, you're not wrong because she does have people read her stuff, and she she has uh, some of the stories blow up. But she is part of the like you're not part, part of, of the that system ecosystem. And I think the which thing makes it, me sick to think about. <laughs> but I think uh, you know. So I'm making this calculation when I'm working with you and I'm calling you a journalist. I don't think that we're doing exactly the same work all the time. Sometimes there's a fair amount of overlap and sometimes there isn't. And I'm making this calculation when I'm working with other journalists that's like, are you a person that's bringing more more news readers in? Are you a person that's like helping convince communities that we need journalists? And if you are, I might not agree with all of the ways that you're doing that. And I might not sort of, I, I, you know, I text you all the time and ask you to stay in your lane or <laughs> for God's sake, stop tweeting long enough for us to focus on something else. But, but my, my, my tweets, but you, you are still bringing people to this place where they understand that we should be paying journalists to do what you and I are doing. And to, for that calculation for me is, is that I think there needs to be more of us, not fewer of us. And, and so I'm we- willing to exist in that ecosystem. I will 100% call you out for some dumb shit and I would do the same with Suzanne Downing, but and I would hope she would do the same for me. We don't operate in the same echo, like ethical framework at all. Well, and she used to work for the Empire a long time ago. I mean, I've talked to people who are this is like the '80s, I think, and maybe '90s. But she was like, according yeah. to a lot of people I've talked to, she she was quite normal back then, you know. Yeah, um, Larry Parsley worked with her for a while, and actually, I have this really great um, you, you love Larry series right? on Anxa. I do love Larry. Larry is Alaska's news dad. I saw him today. Yeah, you're very lucky that you get to work in the same building with someone with that. He's got that driest kind of deadpan, the way he says things sometimes. He's just been around this state for so long that I think he can just call a spade a spade no matter what. And it deflates a lot of people Mm -hmm. because, you know, especially in the Capitol, a lot of people sort of inflate themselves up and they have this sort of self-importance about what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Larry's just been on both sides of the aisle and working as a journalist and working for the state and... I mean, he just, I think he just knows, he knows too much to take anybody seriously. So earlier you were talking about the pay and I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I have like, I would write things and report on things, but then I also have the other side where I'm trying to make, you know, make this business work. So it's, and I can't even imagine how it is for big, bigger newsrooms or 
publications where they have a huge staff and they have, you know, rent and they have all, and I have some, you know, this little office here in, in, in Anchorage, but it's like constantly trying to sell ads or get people to subscribe or, you know, and I, I don't have any kind of pay. I just put it out there. Anybody can read it. And I hope that they, you know, contribute. And I, mean, I think very few probably do of all the total readers, but it's, um, it's really hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's. I feel like I'm always hustling, trying to. Yeah, and it's not just me. I mean, there's other people on the landmine. I mean, Allison does this column, Paxson, so there's rent, and it's always like, and then it's and then it's a struggle of sometimes if somebody gives, um, and I've had this happen where somebody's given or offered, um, you know, a, a, a decent amount of money, more than fifty bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they try to sometimes have some kind of influence on, and I've always said no. I've never taken a dollar to write something or not write something. And, but you know, when somebody gives you a lot of support, it's, it's a little bit harder to tell them to go fuck themselves. Is it? I mean, I always do, Is but, it? but it's, you think, you think in the law, you know, in the background of your mind, like, you know, what am I going to lose? No, I never, I never. And maybe this is because I've never had to work. Uh, one, I don't own a publication like you do. So I'm not worried about hustling money for KTOO. I'm not, I'm not really worried about that for, for, for me, the calculation, um, but somebody there does. when everyone, and it's happened to me at KTOO, it's happened to me at every publication I've ever worked at that someone will call and, you know, be mad about a story that I ran or want me to run something. And I never get to the point where it's like, <laughs> is this going to be bad for the business if I'm rude to this person? Cause I think it just pisses me off so much when it happens. And it's this sort of uniquely, American idea that's like I'm paying for this so you should do what I want which exactly. is a yeah. fundamental no, I, I misunderstanding of what journalism is for and I just think I never quite get to the oh shit this is going to be bad for my paycheck because I'm always just like how fucking dare you <laughs> and read I mean, a book <laughs> I, I wrote um, in 2019 October I think I wrote something basically saying this recall stupid why, it, why I thought it was stupid what I, what I thought it was going to create which it did create all these like it's like open season on recalls now. And, you know, Anchorage has happened a few times. Doing, open season on recalls. We're doing it in Palmer now with my friend Sabrina and two other members of the Palmer City Council. Oh my God. Do you mean the public figured out that they could have some kind of control over what elected no, officials no, do? No, I mean, I mean. I'm so shocked. No, no. Whatever shall not, we do, Landfield? No, that, 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 open season on recalls. That, that, I believe, if you read that statute, it should be for egregious shit. Somebody killed somebody. They got yeah, caught taking a bunch of yeah, money. It's not really your job to have an opinion on that. Well, I, I think I was, cause they I sued. I mean, you can have an opinion on it, but it's not really your job. Well, they sued. Anyways, the, the, well, the point is I wrote the thing <laughs> saying, I think here's why it's stupid. Here's why I think it's stupid. Um, and then I had somebody who had, who had been a pretty good advertiser. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody obviously who was supporting the recall. And they said, you know, I don't like what you're saying. You, you, you need to, you know, take, I don't know what they, words they use, but basically they told me to take it down. I said, no. They go, we're not going to keep advertising with you. I said, okay, great. Do you want? I said, do you want a refund? I'll send you a check. And they kind of like, well, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't expect that. And it was fine. But then another advertiser did stop advertising after that, which, yeah. like I said, I'm not going to change what I say or what I think for money, but it, it does, it always is like something in the back of your mind. It's just a, another little bit of pressure. And I wish that, and this is what I say when I say, I think I've made this calculation that I think it's more important to have a vibrant ecosystem than it is for me to be sniping at people for their ethical choices is that we are all struggling right now to keep this industry alive. And the more people that bring people in, the better. And then we can start having a conversation with the general public about why this industry is necessary. Well, the thing and that I- it will, we'll have some fights. We will, but I just, I wish people would stop assuming that it's a journalist's job to make you feel good about yourself or to present a thing in the world the way that you see it. Cause that's just not really, that's not really what we do. Well, I mean, the thing that I've really learned from doing this is, you know, you, how many people lie to you? I have learned Even that. on accident. I, I've, that wasn't what I would, that wasn't what I was going to say, but yes, I've learned that. Um, it's, you know, the importance of the first amendment and the freedom of the press. I mean, I've written stories and we've done things that have, you know, actually changed big, like, you know, I think of our Campbell Lake story. I mean, that, that feels good for 60 years of kind of policy. I mean, we do some of these immigration stories This woman in Bethel, you know, a couple, I mean, that got traction in Congress for like a private bill. I mean, you do things and you, you raise awareness and you expose things and you, and you can, sometimes you can change things that would normally never, ever get changed. Yeah. Without, you know, somebody researching it and writing it and raising awareness and getting people, uh, 
you know, riled up or upset. Which is why we need journalists to be doing what they're doing. But also, you said something to me the other night that I that I kind of wanted to pick your brain about, and this is your podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I was doing a podcast with Grace Jang yeah. uh, a few years ago, and all of a sudden I was like, fuck, why are you interviewing you, me? You've hijacked <laughs> yeah, my, exactly. hijacked. It's a, I guess I'm just sort of curious um, when you're sort of picking stories to do, because there's just too many for one person. That's why I always say I wish I had three of me. But you, I don't do that. <laughs> I wish I had two other people. Okay, that maybe I could, two other people you know, would be good. But could three landfields tweeting at once would create like a, a black hole. Like a vortex. Yeah. No, I mean, I, if I had the money, believe me, I'd hire people. But, but when you're picking stories, you mentioned the other night when we were talking that impact is something that you're weighing pretty heavily now. And I'm curious, like, if you ran across something that you, and I, I know that you do this all the time because you talk to me about this all the time, you run across a story that you, you see it's blatantly unfair to some group of people, but you also know that the power structure is so entrenched that it doesn't matter if you write about it, nothing's going to happen. Do you just skip that story because you don't think it's going to have the impact? Well, I mean, it depends on what, I mean, if, if I think, part of what I was saying was, you know, if like Chris Constance running for Congress or if, you know, the governor appoints somebody to some position, or, unless it's like a unique thing that only I know about, you know, it's like everybody's doing that story about, about somebody running for something or, so, you know, somebody, some some decision that got made, you know, where, where it's going to be in the ADN and APRN and, you know, Channel 2. So I just don't see, there's no reason for me to do a story well, about something that like everybody else is covering. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that, you know, like in, in this framework of this question picture that it's something that only the landmine has but it's something that like you know just probably isn't going to change much but is important well i mean i it, if it's if it's corrupt i mean if it's some, if it's corruption if it's something that's you know wrong i'm thinking of the like, what do you what do you the I'm, mustang oil field reporting <laughs> and that crazy loan that the department of revenue made uh to ada right well, it was or, a must, it was kind of Brooks there was Range, like some, Brooks, Brooks Range yeah. and this, this Mustang Operations Center. And there was, was this whole sort of tangle of things that hadn't happened before. And when they happened, somebody realized that they shouldn't have happened. And so they changed state regs to make sure. And you did some reporting on this. And then I picked that up and did some reporting on this. And I think we both were sort of trying to untangle this thing that ultimately didn't change anything. The Department of Revenue, I guess, could still change its internal rules and make a loan. Well, no, there was, a, there, was, there was an audit. Yeah, there was an audit. So, th- so that story is interesting, and, and I've gone back and read that story because I think it was in 2018. Yeah. So I was really new to this. That was maybe one of the first, not, not the first, but that was one of the early like investigative story. And I didn't. Really, and you like pieced it together was, entirely with public documents. And I was trying to figure it out, and I go back and read it, and I mean, I I would write that thing so differently now because it was so. How would you written. write it? I'd probably be clearer about it. I would. Um, I mean, it was kind of I just did like a timeline almost. And, and it, it didn't really, it wasn't too, if you were, if you knew really about it, it was clear. But Jeff Landfield, are you saying that you need an editor? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I have Paxson look at a lot of my stuff, but yeah, it'd be nice to have somebody and Paxson, I just wrote, wrote the article about the bus driver who was born in Spain in 1960 and he was naturalized in 1962. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that I've done enough of those stories where it was pretty easy to write. I talked to Margaret Stock, this immigration lawyer, and then Paxson edited it kind of grammar and made it, I call it the Pax and Magic. Yeah. But, the, but that Mustang story, um, I, I was kind of, when I heard about that, when I figured it out, when they got this off the books loan, who, who you know, this oil company who had in, tied in with ADA. Mm-hmm. And I hate, I hate ADA. I think we should get rid of ADA. I think ADA's got so many fucking debacles and boondoggles. Again, not your job. Well, I mean, like, look at all the bad shit they do. <laughs> look at all the bad shit everyone does. Well, this is if one, you really want to take ADA down, then focus your reporting on it. That's your job as a reporter. Show oh, people not, what's under the rock. Don't tell them what to do with but, the but, rock. But this is what I was talking about before. I mean, I, you can ex, you can write about something like that, you know, and you can expose all the bad shit they, they've, anybody, not just them, has done. And, I mean, rarely things fucking change. Okay, but this is what I'm saying. Is like, do you walk away from those stories now because you know that sort of the institution is going to keep going the way that it's going and you do you focus your energy in other places? I wouldn't say I walk away. I mean, if if I if, it was, if, it's, if I had like a Mustang operation story that came across to me, yeah, I would absolutely um, write that story. I'd investigate it because it's it's like you know it's shenanigans and it's it's wrong. I think you know I remember the, the Clark Penny story is another example with Aiden. Yeah. That was when I got a tip on from somebody that the from that kind of bar social scene 
And someone said, hey, you should, you should look into this. And the only reason I got that was because I got the tip and then I put in the records request. Are you on the shenanigans beat? Um, I, 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 I fucking hate, I see this so much up close. All this fucking money and all these people who are getting, like, we're always broke, but there's always like a hundred grand or a million dollars. This, this um, Voice of the Arctic thing I did a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's just a million dollars, okay, at the end. Nobody knows what it's for. <laughs> Even last week in the finance committee, this is after the story came out in the House Finance Committee, Bart LeBon asked Department of Law um, Assistant Attorney General about it because they were talking about state of defense money. Yeah. And, and she literally said, uh, I don't know. We haven't really touched that. All I know is what I saw on the news. Mm-hmm. It's like the magic million. Uh-huh. So I get mad when people in government, whether it's like local or state, whatever, federal, they can just like have their buddies and they have their you know connections and they, they know some lobbyist and, you know, or somebody and they get money put in. And like nobody's watching. I mean, people are watching a little bit, but there's so much fucking money and little line item. That Voice of the Arctic is one line. Yep. That's all it is. One fucking line in the budget. So you have to go, who, who asked for it? Okay, you have to in order to navigate the budget and, and, and you know, the, the legislative budget uh, website and the, and the OMB website. Okay, then you have to start sh- clicking things and you start calling people and you have to start asking around and nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. This is... And that's th- one fucking thing. The thing that enrages you about this is why most of us get into journalism. And I want to say uh, the year that Adian won their first... Pulitzer Prize. And I think that was in the 90s, but I'm, I might just be. I think it was 1990. Talking. Yeah. So the year, so I have the book that um, contains that series. It was one of the first things I got when I got to the state because I wanted to know, you know, what reporting had won the Pulitzer Prize. And there's this amazing story like halfway through that book. And I think it came out of Delaware, but maybe again, I'm probably making this up, but essentially the entire story was that this, these reporters went through the tax code and pulled out individual bits and pieces of the federal tax code, little exemptions, just single line exemptions and wrote little narratives about whose company, the only company that qualifies for this exemption that's buried in this subset and this subset and this subset of the tax code that this, you know, congressman had managed to get in. And Mm -hmm. they, they did this entire, I mean, if you aren't interested in investigative journalism for the sake of investigative journalism, it's probably the most boring thing in the world. But the series was literally just this line, line A, subsection B, whatever C, this paint company that was formed on this date is the only one that doesn't have to pay taxes. And here's that company and here's how it started. And here's who they know. Uh, and I just thought that was the most profound, just sort of I mean, impactful. I've, I've gone through the, have you ever looked at the indirect expenditure report? Oh yeah. So there, there is this for the folks listening, there's this report they come out with every year. They have to, and it's indirect expenditure. So it's basically things that, that like are just, you know, discounted or ta- tax exemptions for some purpose. I mean, okay. Like example would be like senior citizens and like driver's li- license plates or certain things. But I mean, th- this fucking report is hundreds of pages. Mm-hmm. So I start going through it <laughs> and I'm like going through it one by one. And some of it's like, you know, 20,000, 50,000, half a million. But then some of this stuff's like millions of dollars. Yeah. And some of it's like, okay, you know, certain, you know, but even that one is like hunting licenses for like people over 65. It's like, why do they, why do they get that? You know? <laughs> so you start going through it and you start adding it up. But I mean, you could seriously, if I, if I was like, had, you know, like magic wand powers, I could, I could get, I could raise a quarter billion dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm without raising any new taxes and it would just, just be getting rid of exemptions. But everybody's got some reason to have some exemption put in there for some person, some, some point. And I mean, it's like people, it's like companies, it's businesses, it's all kinds of exemptions. Do you think that uh, as you learn this stuff, as you're sort of digging these things up as a reporter, uh, it sort of changes how you understand these political arguments behind larger government and smaller government that maybe a lot of the smaller government folks just, know someone who knows someone who's in on the grift oh yeah i mean so many you know these people especially the people we need to run it like a business i mean anybody who says that typically has never worked in a business because it's 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 not a bit you know business i mean there's efficiencies and things that can be but yeah i mean people everybody's almost everybody takes advantage of something if they can take advantage you know whether it's for them or yeah. for their body like there's this one thing i was look i was doing a story i'm lo- looking at something in the Matsu Valley, and it's kind of a long story, but I vividly remember that Kevin McCabe, Brett McCabe, yeah. had put in some amendment about selling gravel at cost. And it was like a couple of years ago, and I was like, why would, what the fuck is that, you know, from DNR or something about gravel and sand? 
it turns out now this other story that it kind of like jogged my memory. There's some issue in, in these like roads and these service areas and big lake and, and this guy's on the city council and they're trying to change the contract. And part of it has to do with fucking sand. <laughs> so do you think just, this is like human nature to take advantage when you can? I, I think so much shit goes on and like, that's one little amendment mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a bill that's hundred thousands of pages and, I just think there's so much happening and nobody's really watching. I mean, somebody's kind of watching. It's almost like we should pay an entire class of people to be watching for this. Yes. It's almost like there should be like a whole industry of people who are paid to pay attention so that your local representative doesn't screw you out of some well, I money. Wish the, I wish the money was there for that because. It could know. be. There's plenty of money. You just said it. The well, state's they, got a lot of couch you, 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 you think that, well, well, that's the other question. I don't think the government should be funding we talked about that with like, you know, but it's interesting. I listened to this. Um, See, I feel completely differently about that. I listened. I I, did. I think the government should be paying for its own regulators. So so there was a podcast, um, the Freakonomics guys oh, did a podcast yeah. a while ago. And it was about kind of coverage of things and, um, you know, like sensational coverage of like COVID, for example. Mm-hmm. And what they found, this is fascinating, was the coverage in places like Canada and, and Britain where they have like CBC and BBC, it, it, on a lot of these topics was was more in, in depth and less sensationalistic compared to America where, you know, we have, it's all, it's all private for mm-hmm. the most part. So when you do have these government funded operations, they don't maybe worry. The, the point was they don't maybe worry as much about the sensationalists grab you kind of like, oh my yeah. God, click, clickbait things. You're not worried about your advertisers. And I think it's an interesting model, the way the BBC works. My understanding of, of British funded media is that it's a tax. Like everybody, I think at some point it was like, if you had a TV in your home, you paid mm-hmm. this tax and it like went into this pool of money that paid for um, public resources. And there's a couple of proposals to do something like that, to like basically do like a one or 2% tax on people. And that pays for um, media. And I think, I think people should do that. I think everybody should be paying for a vibrant journalism um, ecosystem, but I also think the government should be paying for it because by and large, the government is the reason that we exist. We're supposed to be keeping track of them and making sure that they're not screwing the people. <laughs> and, and, and in a lot of situations that just isn't happening anymore. I 100% think that the state should be paying for its own regulators. And I know that's not a very popular thing. People call the newsroom at KTO I mean, they, they, and they're like, we shouldn't be funding public media. And it's like, well, do you enjoy gavel to gavel? Because we spend a lot of time and yeah. resources making sure that everyone can get access. You know, where do you think that money should come from? Well, I mean, they pay oil and gas regulators, you know, they regulate the oil industry or the mining it, you know, whatever they, they we pay, I guess, yeah, we pay people to regulate all kinds of industries. I, I just think, uh, I think we need to think differently about how journalism should be funded because I think privately funded journalism is dangerous. You're, like, you're looking at me like... <laughs> no, it's just, I'm not, I, I'm not aiming that at you so much as I've been working in several different spheres of journalism since I graduated um, from university and I'm kind of horrified by what I'm seeing of sort of some of the sort of mainstream news outlets and, and just kind of the lack of internal and external controls on where their money is coming from. And sometimes, you know, like nonprofit news is this huge thing now. And at first it seemed like, oh, this is really great. We're going to get this money from these other places. But now you have all of these sort of billionaires and foundations and, you know, people funding media who maybe don't necessarily have the most altruistic motives. And, and again, this is not a new problem. Journalism has always had this problem. I mean, well, the founding like the, the, fathers were using newspapers to fight with each other. So like, like really William Randolph Hearst and yeah, it's well, always been a problem. You know, it's this, just clearly not the solution to the problem. I think. Yeah. No, I mean, Texas Tribune is an example. Didn't, isn't that like one of the nonprofit things that, yeah. And they're doing really, really great work. And so is ProPublica, but I guess I am not convinced that that's, that they're not an exception to the rule, which is that if you have a person with a fair amount of money um, guiding your coverage, they're at some point going to step in and, and maybe guide it in a way that isn't in keeping with the ethical foundations that we're all sort of reaching for. Well, that's kind of the, you know, money is obviously a factor in life and money is important, but I mean, that's the beauty of journalism is, is like real journalism. It doesn't matter if you're not scared. I mean, sometimes you get People don't want to piss somebody off, but I just don't give a fuck for the most part. So I've written some stories like the Campbell Lake thing that pissed off so many fucking like 
rich, rich people. powerful people. And like, who, who am I? Like, I got like, I'm just Jeff Landfield. I've done a lot of money. Okay, you know, but be but honest. Like, like you're you, kind you, of fed by that, right? I, absolutely. There is something very powerful absolutely. about walking into a room in shoes that you bought like 10 years ago that probably have holes in the sides of them and telling someone who makes 10 do, times the buy, amount of money that you do that you know that they lied and I, you're going to tell everyone about it. I do buy nice shoes. I mean, I, I do try to dress. Okay, well, you probably make a little bit more money than I was making at the Peninsula Clarion. I mean, the thing with like shoes and this tight side topic, but I found if you wear suits a lot or nice, nice stuff, if you buy the nice expensive stuff, it lasts forever. Yeah. Tell that to someone who's trying to make a living in Soldotna of $15 an hour. That's that's a good point. And they're probably not Did having to wear. Did you see that the Juno Empire is hiring a reporter and the, the, the pay range they wrote was competitive and it's like 18 to $20 an hour in Juno. You can't even like. I was thinking you're not, you can't even rent for that money. What's that person supposed I mean, to. You can, you can make more than that. Selling like, like Molly Barnes, my friend mm-hmm. who was working at the empire and then she went, you know, was, she was working in the legislature for a while. She was, before COVID, you know, she was selling tours and working for, she was making like a lot of money mm-hmm. doing tours because she's got a you know, personality and probably the kind of person who'd be a journalist, you know, somebody who can talk to people. Um, and she was making like a ton of money working three, four months a year doing, selling tours. So, And then you go to the Empire and you make $18 an hour and they work you like a dog. And the Empire is a really interesting case because it bills itself as being like family owned or whatever, but the company that owns the Empire is actually wholly owned as a subsidiary by Black Press Media in Canada, which is not, they're not losing money. <laughs> They've got plenty of money to pay someone a competitive wage here. And I, I just think, I don't know, That's we could talk about that. This could be this the could be a whole, whole Landfield series. and McChesney media power hour if we wanted it to be. Before, before I forget, I want to ask you, when I first came across you years ago when I was reading stuff, I thought you were like an Indian, like Indian dot. Everyone like says Russia. that. Yeah, that's, that's I just and then I met you and I was like, because you did like the, you're you're like kind of like hardcore white chick, you know. You do you do the um, <laughs> what's it called the the roller derby? Yeah, like she's called me a hardcore white chick. Oh yeah, thanks. It's a compliment. I think yeah, but I mean, I just you're, you're not Indian, you know. So it's wh- actually not an Indian name either. Um, it's a very common Arabic boy's name. Um, is my understanding, and maybe some people in India. Have how'd they pick? How'd the parents, I mean, Texas, uh, white, white girl Texas, how'd they? My parents uh, wanted a biblical name, and do you know anything about the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? Uh, I was raised uh, quite religious, so yeah, I'm familiar with Great, so you know Rachel and Sarah. Rachel was the shepherdess, and Sarah was the princess. Yeah, so they were, was that, they were the wives of... Uh, Get there, come on. Abraham yeah, there and... There you go. Uh, who's the other one? Abraham and... Damn, I'm forgetting. I think Rachel was Isaac's wife. Isaac. Yeah. Okay. And so um, I was my parents' first daughter, one of eight kids, but I was their first daughter and they were very excited to have a girl. And I think they were having sort of like a philosophical argument about what kind of girl they wanted me to be. And my mom was like, Rachel, she'll be dutiful and a shepherdess. And, you know, she'll be a really great daughter. And my dad was like, I want a princess. Her name's going to be Sarah. And they went back and forth about this for nine months. And then right before I was born, um, my dad was like, what if we combined it? And my mom was like, okay, great. How about Rasha? And they spelled it without the H on the end um, at first. So my birth certificate, I was born at home, has like my name, R-A-S-H-A. And then there's an H drawn in clearly in different pen. R-A-S-H-A is Rasha. R-A-S-H-A is Rasha. Okay, because R-A-S-H-A-H, right? Yep. And so they added the H like six months after I was born and before they submitted my birth certificate because I guess a rabbi visited my church and told them that Rasha without the H on the end um, was like some kind of, uh, I think one of the. Wait, why did the rabbi stop by? Uh, he was just visiting. He just saw the name. He's like, and, what Well, no, he, he was like visiting the church and he saw my name and explained to them that that was like not a great thing to name your kid. And I have read the phrase, don't be a Rasha, but I can't remember which of the three um, Jewish holy books it's in. It's some kind of sloth, something or it's the like other. a Yiddish thing or something? Yeah. Or, oh. So they just added the H on the end, but. Tack that on. Well, anyways, yeah. that's why I first. It was very loose in the family naming, <laughs> McChesney family naming. I pictured some like <laughs> Indian woman who like married in a McChesney. It's like a very Alaskan thing because I've heard that from so many people and y'all just got to quit assuming. <laughs> I've only been here since 04. Or, oh, when did I move here? Yeah, 04. So. Oh, really? Where are you from? Yeah, New Mexico. We've talked about that. New Mexico. Oh, I think I didn't know that. No, we've talked about that. Neighbor, I don't neighbors, think we Texas, have. New I Mexico. think I thought you were from Texas. Or, sorry, from Alaska. No, no, I moved here. I was 19. I was 2004. Mm. Um, last thing I want to talk about, we've talked a lot about this. Yeah. Do you want you want to guess? No. What I want to talk I mean, we talk about this. What? 
what are we? The masks. masks. The masks. Masks. masks we are not wearing right now. No, no, just, just, just in general, how, how much I hate the masks and. No, we talked about this. We haven't talked about this on the podcast. Yeah, but we talked about this, and I don't think that you're anti-mask. I think that you are anti-virtue signaling. And see, I think you're, you're right about that. You because I will actually I don't think the masks do that much. I mean, the N95 ones obviously are pretty good, but um, if somebody like I came into the bookstore and you asked me to, and I said okay, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll whatever, I'll follow the rules. But I, I just the ones who like. Capital thing, for example, it's like they all have the masks on in the Capitol, not in their offices. You go down to these receptions, these banquets, and the bars and the restaurants, and they weren't. I mean, nobody's wearing hardly anybody. So yes, it is the virtue signaling. That's that, the problem. But that, I think that you like to tweet about masks because if you tweeted about being anti-virtue signaling, people wouldn't complain at you. But I think you're very fed by the feedback loop of Twitter being mad at you, specifically like women on Twitter being mad at you. I just don't see. I think a lot of these woke types. And this is this is not me the first one to say this, but in the '80s there was the you know the kind of Falwell moral majority, and back then the conservatives were known as like, you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to like you know don't don't you can't live your life this way, or you know they're, they're uh, condemning. Wasn't it, it wasn't just the '80s in the '90s. I just heard a podcast about this. Do you remember when like Tipper Gore? And all of those like wives of oh, the, <laughs> senators the, the, like the, went the, crazy about labeling music. The rap music, they, yeah. They, yeah, the rap. No, it music. wasn't rap music. Well, it was like it was like hair metal. Like there was an amazing series of hearings. I just listened to them a few days ago, where these women are basically going up against like um, these like shock jocks and hair metal um, bands. And I think there was a hearing in like maybe the late nineties, I think. And that's why we have labels on music now mm-hmm. that tell you like. Oh, you know, your kids can hear some curse words if they listen to this. So it's like there's been woke types on either side. Well, I used to I, I look look back to like the moral, you know, the Falwell type mm-hmm. era, but now it's like the woke left who who want to, you know, if you don't succumb to their demands or if you don't say what they want you to say or if you say something they don't want you to say, and then they they kind of demand you delete something or they not say something, they get so mad and it's like why do people give a fuck what somebody else says? Why do they care so much what somebody else says or believes or? I mean, even if it's something crazy, like who, I mean, who gives a fuck? I think, okay. So I, I think there's so much wrapped into that little uh, question that you just asked me. But the thing that I think is important to understand is like when it comes to masks, um, there are people working at the Capitol who are immunocompromised. And so the rules are put in place by people who are hoping that everyone will be the best version of themselves and create a safe space for everyone to work in that building. And some people don't want to do that, either because they don't believe that masks work or because they want the pandemic to be over and they think we're in this endemic phase or they're lazy or for whatever reason, that policy was designed to enable us to keep each other safe. Well, and every and there's just not buy-in for that anymore. And that's, well, that somebody, is what it is. If somebody asked me, hey, if Jeff, you're around this person, um, you know, wear, wear a mask, I'd say, okay. But also if somebody... Do you feel bad about the social pressure? Well, I was going to say, if somebody's really sick or really... C- compromised or worried about themselves. I mean, maybe it's up, you know, up to them to kind of not work at the Capitol. Yeah. Well, we'll just be, be considerate about where they, what they do and, and maybe tell people, Hey, you know, I want you to, if you're around me, I'm, this is what's going on. And I think most, I think most people would actually probably respect that. Do you understand how often, um, people during this pandemic have told their friends and neighbors and relatives and people that they work with that they're immunocompromised and they need to be in a space with masks so they don't catch this virus. And we've been doing it for two years. And at some point you just hit a point where you realize your friends and neighbors and relatives and the people that you work with don't give a shit if you die. So. Well, I mean, I don't think that, I don't think people, I wouldn't say that's the case. People don't. Oh, is that too extreme? Dies. Am I characterizing that super extreme? Weird. I mean, like, like I said, it if somebody, if somebody told me, yeah, but why should that person have to tell you? That's that's you walk how, into the bookstore. How... There's a big sign on the front door that my boss put there because she just had a baby. So we have this requirement that you that you wear a mask when you come into the bookstore. And I, as the person who works at that place, enforce that requirement. And which which I which I right yeah, away did. Which you did. But like, there's a big sign on the door that's like, "Hey, wear a mask when you're in here." And you're like, "Fuck that! I'm Jeff Landfield." And I'm like, "Hey, okay, okay, <laughs> put okay, a okay. Mask okay. On. To, 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 to be fair, and I was just actually thinking about this a couple of days ago. So many, I, I, I was at, uh, um, what is it, the Breeze Inn, yeah. and, then, and then the Tubido's place where I'm, yep. all these places have masks, but nobody wears, I mean, so it's like you said, we've kind of gone, like, we've crossed we've over a point. We've just lost the sort of, like, cultural buy-in to keep people safe, but I think it's important to understand that, like, but do you think the, ma- do you think the masks- a significant portion of the population, uh, 
they're still trying to keep their friends and neighbors safe. And so I think we've hit this sort of like tension point where it's like, yeah, I'm going to tell you to put a mask on. I'm not immunocompromised. My partner is immunocompromised. So I'm going to tell you to put a mask on so that you don't give me something that I take to my but, partner. But do you think the shitty cloth masks? I'm not wearing a shitty cloth, ma- cloth mask. I'm wearing an N95 mask. You, that's correct. But like most people don't wear the N95. So, I mean, I guess if, you know, if, if it's like everybody has to, you know, when you're walking around a mask, wear the N95. I mean, that would be... That's a binary that I don't know that I agree with. I just don't think the cloth masks, I mean, do that much. So, and, and I, I just, I guess, okay, I, I guess I hate being told to do. But they do more than nothing. I guess I just hate, I also hate being told to do something. I am aware of that. I'm highly aware of that. But I also think, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with you that we have this, this problem of like people trying to police each other's speech and we need to engage Um, on a lot of the issues that I see you tweeting about a lot, there are unresolved questions and we need to engage on those and we're not able to do it because there's this sort of like hysterical freak out every time some of these things come up. And I, I, I think you see that and you're calling it wokeness. If you want, that's fine. Uh, I don't know that I agree with that either, but I think we do need to engage on those issues. But I think foundationally, like what you're sort of pointing at with the masks is like an issue where some people are asking for compassion and, We've just never done that well, as a and, society. And let me qualify. We've lost I, that capacity to do that as a society. And that's okay. You don't have to wear a fucking mask. We're not wearing masks right now. You're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I know it's going to be not great for the audio quality. I texted before I, I tested before I got here. I'm going to test again in a few days. But like foundationally, when you refuse to wear a mask in a space with a group of other people and you haven't checked in with that group of people, you're basically just saying, I don't care about any of you on well, this and, and, issue. And, let, 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 I care about myself. Let me qualify what I said before is I hate being told what to do. I really hate being told what to do by the government. Yeah. That's what I was really kind of talking about specifically. And the like, government, like the airplanes the government or the is asking you to put a mask on so that you don't kill everybody else. But I was just going to say, if, if it's a, if it's somebody's business or if it's somebody's, a friend of mine's home, but I why? will abide by that. But why, why does it have to be that? Why does it have to be that, you know, and have, because it's just virtue signaling. <laughs> it's not virtue signaling for the, public health measures to be in place. So, but, but like on the airplane, like people take them off to eat and drink and then you go to the airport and they're in the restaurant and like, no, it, it just, to me, it doesn't, I mean, this the sounds, hor- this sounds horrible, but if you're, you're sick. going to stop the virus from transmitting in those places. It's that you're going to reduce its ability to transmit in those places. Like, yes, people take their masks off to eat. Some people let their kids crawl on the floor in the airport, which is a nightmare. Yes, you take your mask off in a plane too to eat. And those are moments of risk. No one is saying you're never going to get this virus and we're never going to transmit this virus. And if you get this shot, you're never going to get the virus. That's not what's happening. They're saying, let's reduce the chance. Let's all pitch in and reduce the chance to catch this virus. Let's try for once as a species to try and beat this other species. (laughs) And we just like humans seem to not really be into that. Well, I, mean, I, think I think we sort too, of like lost, we lost. I also think too, I mean, for, I mean, early on, I vividly remember, I was like pretty worried about this. I'm thinking if it's 2%, if it's really a 2% kill, which thank God it's not, you know, it's way less than that. But if it would have been a 2% killer. Yeah, fuck that million people, right? I'm we just, needed to get rid of some people anyway. No, I, I'm not, I didn't say In that. America. No, what I'm saying is. No, two, I mean, it's not I mean, Early on, I was no. thinking two or three. I mean, that's, that's actually legitimately what you just said. Two or three percent is like if that would have been if it would have been that. I mean, a lot there would have been millions and millions. So like of people. a million people in the U.S. is okay, but not like it's not okay. like not, ten million. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm like just how saying many that, is okay? Or, I mean, people die of the flu every year. Six, yeah, 70, like six, a seventy thousand people, people. Yeah, sixty thousand yeah. people. I think it's a per year. Jeff, people die of think about what car you just accidents. said out people, loud. People, people what die. What is the of, acceptable number of dead people for you to not have to? I, I'm not somebody to be okay with. It's not my decision measures. to say what what's acceptable. But I'm saying, but it is your decision to tell the government to piss off because they've tried to enforce some kind of public health measure. And your justification that you just gave to me is that this virus is not killing too many people. The, the point I was trying to that make is was the argument that a sociopath makes. No, the point I was trying to make was um, at first, you know, everybody was, free, I think, really freaked out. Nobody knew what this thing was going to be. Yep. And thank God it's not as bad as the early first projections were. were but it's still pretty too, bad. It's, ba- it's bad, yeah. And I think now people have had the chance to get vaccinated. It's even worse in the global south. So, the what? The not America. The global south? The not America. I don't know what the, uh, is that like South America? Uh, the the like countries that are generally in the southern hemisphere not having the same vaccination rate or access to vaccines that we are. Yeah, and that and then that's I was watching the Olympic guy last closing ceremony. They were talking about one of the things you need to get 
one of the goals they were saying is to get access to all these countries. Because some people have, they have really no access to the vaccination. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries. And that's, that's a, you know. So the, so the virus is probably going to kill a lot more people in those places. Hopefully they can get, you know. Also people, you know, they're talking about now the CDC's come out with his new guidance about natural immunity. How that's, that's a good thing. Oh, did they come out with guidance? A thing I'm super curious about is if you get natural immunity from Omicron in the same way that you did from like Delta, because Omicron's so different. Um, or has some differences than Delta. So I'm, I'm really curious if we know that like this version of COVID-19 that we're all getting now is like conferring upon us the same kind of natural immunity. Yeah, I wouldn't, I would not uh, begin to you don't want to speculate know on that, that. <laughs> but, but I do know that things, these things tend to get less lethal because they, they don't want to, because the more people they kill, the more, the more likely the thing goes well, away. Yeah, like hopefully, but, but my understanding is that you also want, the population to be getting vaccinated at sort of the same rate so that you don't have like, like a highly vaccinated population next to an unvaccinated population getting the same levels of exposure to the virus is still probably going to end up passing it around. Yeah. I mean, and this whole anti, I, you know, this, I, I'm very, I've been very against this anti-vax stuff and, and especially some of the arguments that get made. And I mean, I got it and I got the booster and I got all my measles, you know, when I was a kid, I've went to Central America back in 20, or I'm sorry, Central Asia back in 2013. I got a oh, bunch did of... did you have to get a... Was it hepatitis? I got like up whatever they recommended I got, you know. Yeah. I think it was Tdap and maybe hepatitis and some yeah. other ones. And But, you know, there's this whole in the last, I guess, decades, this anti-vac... You know, this is before COVID even, you know, this like Jenny McCarthy crap. She even came out and was like, oh, maybe I wasn't... Didn't know what I was talking about. But all these people follow it. Well, there's a really interesting, I think, again, spectrum of anti-vax, vaccine hesitant, anti-mask, mask hesitant, I mm-hmm. guess. Like, I, I think, I don't know, there's a... But, I, but I, can also see, there. I can also see why people are skeptical of all these newer vaccines that are, you know, because you look at the big pharma, and I do I do think it's fair to say, well, what 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 is their... Jeff, you just told me that you haven't been paying attention to the science of Omicron, and now you're going to tell me that you understand being skeptical of an mRNA vaccine? Like, pick a side. I'm not, I'm not even talking about COVID. This is before COVID. I'm talking about all, you know, there's all these new vaccines that have been coming out. So I think it's fair to say, okay, you know, there's polio, there's these proven, tried, proven things that we've all kind of, you know, done. Do you and know then, how bad the original vaccines were for us? Do you know how many people died when we first started vaccinating people because like of polio? Like crappy vaccine quality? Was A it? lot of people. In fact, some of the original fights that we had over whether the government could tell uh, people to be vaccinated or not, were one of them um, that went all the way to the Supreme Court was a doctor who didn't think that it was safe to get vaccinated against smallpox. I think it was smallpox because they used to, <laughs> they used to, I guess, in... I don't know, again, not an expert, but I remember hearing the story that they used to like pull the vaccine from like infected cows or something. I don't know. Anyway, this doctor sees the way these vaccines are made and is like, absolutely not. I have, I want nothing to do with that. And the government at the time was like going into people's homes and pulling them out and vaccinating them in the middle of the night. And uh, I think I saw that during the beginning of COVID, that was like 19, early 1900s. Fascinating. Vaccines used to kill people because they were so... There just like was no quality control. <laughs> so I get also why people might be like, hey, has there been enough quality control in this drug that I'm about to put in my body? But also, you know, that's always been a risk. It's not like a new thing. We're having the same fights now that we had during the I mean, 1918 I mean, pandemic. Life is inherently a risk. Everything about our life is a risk. We get up, we go out, we, I mean, we risk walking across the street, we risk getting on an airplane, risk getting in a car. So, I mean, I just feel like... Yeah, but the crappy thing is when life is a little bit more risky for you during a pandemic and you drive really hard to like keep yourself safe. And because you have to work, uh, cause you're not like maybe a person of independent means who has the ability to hunker down for three years and never see anybody else. I know people at the Capitol who don't go out to bars, don't go out to restaurants, only go to work and go home. Like they go yeah, outside, no, there's, there's, yeah, there's you know, like, sure. like, true. and, and that person is trying to keep themselves safe and you have a bunch of it sounds like you're saying a bunch of virtue signalers in the, in the Capitol who aren't wearing masks all the time. And that's, it's, you know, it just, it sucks to be a person in the position. I, mean, I, I, like, I walked in someone's office. I'm not going to say who, cause I don't want to, not that guy, but like I walked in someone's office today and let's just say a not Republican type. And I walk in and Oh my God, they, I just wanted to say hi to somebody and they all put their, like they freak out. They seem to put their masks on. I mean, it's like, yeah, come cause on, you like, walked into their office. Did you put a mask on? I was wearing a mask because the rule is to wear a mask in the Capitol. So, but it's like, 
they don't wear their masks when they're amongst, but as soon as I walk in or somebody walks in, they're together. They work together. They're in the same bubble. But I mean, I see Jeff the, Landfield, I see are these you people being the bars. willfully ignorant? No, I see these people at the bars and <laughs> I'm telling you, they wear them in the fucking hallways and that's it. Okay. That's <laughs> bullshit. They're having a meeting on Wednesday. I'm pretty sure it's going to get repealed. That's okay. council. So and I'll just be quiet. Well, no, the airplanes. Will you be quiet? Will you, will you be quiet? When the airplanes, uh, when they remove it for the airplanes, I'll, I'll be quiet. About that. Correct. About that. Okay. So last thing, um, I love talking to you, by the way. We, we are very different people, but I think we're kind of kindred spirits, too, at the same time. So um, you're going to the South. Is it Alabama or Mississippi? Yeah, I'll be in Alabama, but I'll be with the Gulf States Newsroom, which is an energy desk-like collaborative um, with some slightly different focus. And it'll be, uh, I'm, we'll be editing reporters in Alabama, um, Mississippi, and Louisiana. So are you moving or? Yeah, I'm moving to Alabama. Not soon. I mean, it's going to be a couple months. Um I'll be starting work remotely in March. That's kind of funny because a lot of people think AL is like Alaska. I know. Alabama. I'm running into this problem now trying to, uh, I think I'm going to buy a house because it's like much cheaper to buy a house there. Um, and it's actually cheaper to buy a house there than it would be to rent. So um, That's something else we should talk about is like you've talked about how you can't buy a house here. Cause it's so, I can't. <laughs> it's so fucking expensive in Juneau. I mean, this is the thing that I think I'm still trying to figure out what my like goodbye Alaska letter is going to be. Cause I don't think that it's goodbye forever. I think it's just like goodbye until I can figure out how to get enough money together to put a down payment on a house somewhere in the state. Um, I got, yeah, real, I, I, I got can't. real lucky with my place. I, I used to make, do you own your own house? Condo. <gasps> I mean, I used to make a lot of money in it. I mean, I went from it and the telecom to then I, Got let go. I went to Australia. I came back. Started. I was working oil and gas for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I got a um, great deal in 2012. It was a. I was running for state senate at the time, so I told my realtor, "I'm looking for a house in this, you know, this political boundary." And he's kind of like, "What? <laughs> Why would?" He didn't I understand. mean, there are lots of reasons people pick a house. That makes sense. But um, it was you know I had money saved up. I had worked in IT, so I'd saved some money up, and there was a little condo that I still have, and it was a foreclosure from HUD, and it was kind of a bit of a process, but. It was, you know, I got it for about 144000 and then I had to put some money into it. But, I mean, it was really worth, at the time, probably 180 190 Nice. And it's gone up in value, obviously, but... Do you still live there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love Are it. Are you going to sell it and buy a house? I eventually do want to buy a bigger house, like a three-bedroom, so I can, because two-bedroom have, like, guests and all that. But, um, no, I got such a good interest rate, and the mortgage is so low, and plus the due, I mean, I can rent, rent it out and, you know, pay way over the mortgage and the, the condo dues. Yeah. But I mean, I got pretty lucky. I mean, I, that, that was a good deal and I got right place, right time kind of thing. I think when I come back to settle here, I'm going to try for something on the Kenai Peninsula. I love the Kenai. Oh yeah. There's good. Yeah. Really like somewhere in Kasilov or Nikiski. Um, there's a really good fishing down in Nilchik. Um, but I'm also a pretty big fan of Bethel, <laughs> which is not going to be cheaper than Juneau. So Maybe I still haven't yeah. found my favorite part of Alaska yet. Um, I don't know what the houses cost there, but I know the fucking... Groceries and stuff are very expensive. But it's also beautiful. Have you been to Bethel? Um, you know, I've never been to Bethel. It's on my list. I want to go. You know, I read um, Going to ext- uh, going to Extremes. <laughs> the Joe McGinnis book. Yeah, he, he's, he writes a whole, there's a whole chapter about <laughs> So you want to go do like Coke in the airport in Bethel is what you want to do. I mean, if I, I joke, I, I'm not even joking. If I was my age in the 70s, I'd probably you have like. You would 100% be a cokehead. I'd probably have like a cocaine burnout. I'd probably do yeah. like five years of like hardcore 100%. life. 100%. Like if I was me right now and it was 1975. <laughs> Like, forget about it. I mean, <laughs> it would be like, but, yeah. I mean, he, but he's a whole, there's a whole chapter about going to Bethel, meeting those people mm-hmm. who, the kind of hippies who came up. And then, you know, six months later, like the one guy's like the head of the library and somebody else is like the head of, they're doing these, like, they're like big jobs and making money and they're doing all these like, yeah. they were like living in a tent and all of a sudden they're like, you know, and, and there it was a whole that chapter. happened all over the state. Well, you're reading coming into the country now for the Landmine uh, book, my book club, club, right? Yeah, we're reading yeah. it for April book. So you're going to read some stuff in there that's the same thing. This state was the land of opportunity for a long time. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a whole, this is a whole different podcast. But I feel like, it, you know, even when I moved here in 04, I was kind of an optimistic. Maybe I'm just jaded, but I mean, I don't have an optimistic outlook for Alaska. I mean, I look at the legislature and just... It's not like, your job to have an optimistic outlook. It's your job to make sure that people are informed about the world around them and yeah, understand how to make policy decisions that will make the state a good place to live. But it's nice you to live in a place where you feel like, <laughs> hey, there's... I mean, I bet you people in the 70s were like, holy shit, this is amazing. Doing a lot of coke, getting a lot of money. Um, yeah. 
Don't, don't get you want you don't want got that, that feeling. You want that? <laughs> yes, yes, I, yes. I want to feel like that. Sure, absolutely. I don't, I don't think that was. I don't. I think there are other ways to live. There, I mean, that's true. It's all a spectrum. Quiet, quiet fishing. You ever fish the Kasiloth? Mm, I don't fish much. You know, I, I need to do it more. I don't. Not a, I never got really into it. I think it would change your outlook to more uh, optimism if you learned to live alongside the parts of this state that probably drew you here in the first place. I mean, politics is cool and all like you, you should do that reporting and then you should fly out to Bethel. It looks like, um, you ever been to Oklahoma? I have. It looks like Oklahoma. I, Bethel made me homesick in a way that no other place ever has when I landed in it in the state. Cause it's just a sort of wide open sky that goes on forever. And the tundra is like golden. It's beautiful. And it looks like the South in Bethel and you get there and it's quiet. You know, there's no one virtue signaling on the tundra. You can just, Hang out, eat berries. Take I got. I got. I got to go. It's, it's on my list. Well, Roger, it's been a great. I mean, this is yeah, we did over a, over an hour here. Good job. I, I hope like I didn't keep, embarrass keep myself too much. No, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I did. Uh, we have that in common. Yeah. Good job. Fist bump. I like that. Um, so you're going to be around. We should do another one of these, but you're going to be, when are you, yeah, what's the I plan? I start remote in March and then, you know, it kind of just depends on when I can buy a house. So maybe late April, early May, I'll head down there. And then it's a, you know, it's a grant funded job. So I'll be done in a couple of years and figure out what's next. Well, uh, we'll do another one of these before you leave and then make sure, I'm sh- sure you're going to be active on Twitter. So yep. keep keeping Complaining us. Complaining at you on Twitter. That's, uh, yeah. Well, actually, I text Not you. The only one. I don't want to engage with you on Twitter. I want to take your tweet and text you and be like, "What the fuck is this?" I was going to say, I really respect <laughs> that about you. Is is if if you disagree or get you know mad about something I say or whatever, you kind of text me. Yeah. You know, where other people, there's people who on fucking Twitter, and I hate Twitter, but I love it too. But I hate it. Um, they will like light me up and say the most horrible things, and then I'm not going to even say who, but one person sticks out, and then they'll they'll like text me, "Hey, can you like put this out there for me and do me a favor?" And I'm like. Fuck you. Like, you, you can treat somebody like that and ask for a favor? Virtue signaling, you get internet points. Oh, my God. You hate virtue signaling. You, Jeff Landfield, hate virtue signaling. That is absolutely accurate. I mean, yeah. I'm just I'm just me. I say what I think. I do what I want. And, you know, <laughs> and I hate virtue signaling. <laughs> absolutely right. Okay, Rasha McChesney. Great, great Jeff podcast. Landfield. yeah. Good talking to you. And uh, we'll do one of these again before you leave. I'd love that. Sounds good, all right? Great. Okay, folks, that's Rasha McChesney, my, uh, my good buddy. And... If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.